1: Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality
3: at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family
1: will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone.
4: Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and occasionally also about what you can do about it and today we're doing we're, we're, we're going we're, we're going completely full into a what you can do about it episode and specifically we're going to be talking about unions union organizing the basics of what they are and also some of the history of it and to, to talk with us about this I I have brought I have brought my good friend John Hieronymus who is a nurse steward with National Nurses United in Chicago hi John how are you how are you doing
5: I'm doing good. Yesterday was my first full day back at work after being out on light duty from having COVID uh, for this last uh, year. And so uh, I got home yesterday and was pretty tired because I haven't walked that much in a day. A oh, time. no. It's fine. But, uh, I mean, it was a good day. I got lots of hugs from my coworkers. Oh. I didn't I didn't forget anyone's name, which I was terrified of, Um, and didn't fuck anything up. Um, nice. And then when I got home... When I got home, I hopped on after I got my kids from school, I hopped on a union organizing call with 20 nurses from a hospital in the south. We're very excited about so um, I was it was it was a
4: big day that that rules. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess I should also do do a, a very, very brief long COVID check in because this is another thing that I think people aren't talking about that is also like a huge labor issue, which is that yeah, like long COVID fucking sucks, and like I like I know like my, my like one of my cousins had it and you know they they've been in bad shape for a long time. Like they still can't taste properly and like they I I, th- I think you got from from what I remember like pretty bad, like in terms of yeah. Sorry if you don't have to talk it, about this if you don't want to, but.
5: Oh, I don't care. I mean, I think people should like know that this is still going on. Like the pandemic is still happening. Um, People are still getting sick and some are still dying, which really sucks. And the long COVID thing is real. Um, The, I didn't get sick in the sense of showing up, having to be in like a hospital or ICU or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I got sick and um, the recovery like the, the year or the month or so after I got sick was when things actually got bad because something happened with my, um, my nerves and my neuromuscular, I had a neuromuscular uh, variant of like the long COVID symptoms. And that led me to having all its kinds of issues with um, basically just being exhausted from basic things, anything more than just getting up and walking around, I would have to like lay in bed afterwards and it would I had multiple episodes of the past year where I would cross some invisible line in terms of like endurance and then be stuck in bed for a week. And so it's been a long thing, but I've been slowly getting better and people who fall into that neuromuscular thing do slowly get better. I think that's the the upshot uh, people with heart problems. Those tend to be permanent and aren't getting better, which sucks. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just like, I think that a lot of people it's a very weird surreal thing to watch what is effectively like a like a a a global public health catastrophe get politicized the way it has and yeah. treated the way it has been by everybody involved. So um anyway, I just uh I'm doing better with that and it's shaped me over the last year and it's shaped union organizing and yeah. um I'm glad that I'll say this to people who are thinking about unions. I'm glad that I had the union kind of backing me up. Um, even when I had to pull them a little bit in the dire- the right direction uh, it's much better to have that kind of collective power behind yeah. you when you're yeah. uh, dealing with those kind of problems.
4: So that's actually a good way into looking at just sort of in general, what a union is, because I think there's, there's, There's two things here. There is what a union is legally and what a union actually is in terms of just the people in it and the sort of power behind it. And so I was wondering if you could, well, one, I mean, just on on an incredibly basic level, explain what a union is like legally, like what is legally defined as doing, because I feel like that's also something that is not as well understood as it should be.
5: Yeah, for sure. So In the United States, there's uh, a series of laws that kind of regulate, um, you know, the kind of uh, collective um, bargaining um, and collective organization of workers um, at work. Um, An important thing to understand is that um, those laws are mostly designed to constrain workers' power to affect their, their, you know, working conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you look at what a, a union legally is, um, unions are, uh, for the most part, um, they're legal organizations that kind of like operate on a dues basis. So if you're in a union, you're paying dues out of your paycheck. Um, if you work at a unionized workplace, those dues will get subtracted out, um, regardless of your membership or activity within the union. Um, one thing that people don't understand is that you can, if you don't want your dues to go to anything besides supporting organizing at your particular workplace, you can, uh, request unions are legally required to, um, offer you that as an option. Um, and then those dues get taken out of your paycheck and they get used to do things like rent a union hall. Um, pay staffers to help you with your organizing. Um, They get taken to do lobbying, various types of political activity. And so for a lot of people, unions will feel like a professional association that lobbies on their behalf rather than a uh, collective expression of the will of workers in a particular workplace. But, um, or... It'll feel like patronage machine for, you know, Democratic Party, that sort of stuff. Um, But that being said, um, unions all have bylaws. They all have mechanisms by which they're, you know, theoretically democratically accountable to the membership. Um, And there are oftentimes um, campaigns by workers to change how unions operate. And, um, and then also, you know, when you're setting up a union, if you're in a new, if you're in a place that doesn't have a union, and you're looking to get a union, uh, because you're fed up with not having any kind of power over your workplace, or you feel like people are getting discriminated against or bullied, um, you feel like you haven't gotten a raise, um, those sorts of things, you can pick the union that you decide if you want to get a a collective bargaining agreement, which is a legal contract, kind of like dictating how you're Workplace operates in a uniform way. Uh, you can pick the union that you want to organize with. And there are unions that are better to organize with, that are more democratic, more collectively accountable. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are unions that are more organized or more focused on actually building the union power and organizing new workplaces. And then there are unions that are kind of like, they're, you know, and I'm going to say that kind of blur in the US, there's like a blurry line between rank and file unions and business unions. Cause even rank and file unions are kind of constrained by the same pressures that business unions operate under. Can we, um, like, b- and I'll explain b- the b- difference. D- yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll explain the difference in a second, but I just want to say that yeah. like when you're, when you're getting a new union, it's really important for you to critically look at what your options are mm-hmm. and your set and who you're organizing with because unions have different cultures and different amounts of, um, different kinds of politics and you should be aware of that before you and your coworkers decide to commit to working with one union while you're getting an or- a union organized. Um, and then I can explain that next part if you want me to.
4: <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All
5: right. So, yeah. So, and you know, if you get deep into union history and uh, deep into organizing and figuring out like what, unions are and what they do and how they've worked kind of in the past you'll find that there's different types of unions. So American unions started as like kind of like craft guilds where basically you would have a factory that might have like 20 different unions of each individual group of people in um, each individual skill set would be underneath the union and it was used as a way to kind of control um, who was able to do the work. And who was getting hired in to do the work. And a lot of times that would end up in the United States, um, being segregated. Um, and, uh, there would be these called union scabbing where you would go in and do work against people who are striking because your union was fine and you were cool with your boss and these other people, whatever their problem is, you're just going to keep doing the boss will offer you more money and you'll do the work. Right. So, and a lot of that has kind of carried into what we call trade unions, uh, in the U.S. A specific and trade unionism is particularly, um, uh, prominent in, uh, in construction.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: So you'll have carpenters and you'll have, you know, masons and you'll have, you know, pipe fitters and iron workers and all these different guys. And they all kind of come together and work as a crew for like a construction company, and oftentimes their union operates more like a, cons- a contractor than like a collective like uh, yeah. expression of the the power of those workers. So um, then there are more, there are unions that are, would be considered like industrial unions. So industrial unions, industrial unionism was invented by a union a hundred years ago called the industrial workers of the world. And they were like, what if we got took, all of the workers in an industry and got them into one big union. Right. And then what if all those workers in those different in- industries were talking to each other and building their their power? And the, the goal would be that you would become so powerful that you could basically take over industries as workers and run them on a democratic basis so that you wouldn't have, you kind of liquidate uh, capital. capital. Yeah.
4: And I I, I want to say this briefly also like, yeah so the bosses did not like this I mean the IWW like the IWW was so feared that like like there's something called the Everett Massacre where it's like it, it got to a point in the early 1900s where just a group of IWW people showing up to a place was enough to get like the 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 entire like an entire city police force and like rounding up literally every right winger they could do and deputizing them and then just opening fire like into the crowd because like the IWW had showed up on a boat like this was yeah, yeah. These people were ter- like people were terrified of them, and and I think the the other thing I think is really interesting about the early IWW's history is that is the the so you know part of the response to them is like they they are just mass, and this is what the first red scare was basically was was an anti IWW thing, and also you know they shot people, they arrested people, they like they deported people, and but they also you know a lot of the things that I, I think we we have this tendency to look at as like a socialist reform, where for example like putting workers on corporate boards, right? Or like like in, internal democratic self-management, but that's like, you know, that's still still sort of boss controlled, right? It's like, well, okay, you have like a council of people who can make recommendations or like even even down to, you know, we're going to have our own internal like corporate unions like set up by the company, but the, you know, the, the corporate union gives you a workers council and the council can sort of control production. But, you know, it's it's still it's still run by the bosses. And like all of these things were stuff that like the Rockefellers set up or like you know, even even the early neoliberals would would set this stuff up because they were they were so scared of people like they, they were so scared of people just taking over stuff democratically, and just running it just literally through the union that they were like, we will, we will literally give you democracy in the workplace. We will give you like, we will give you like workers on corporate boards, literally just so long as you don't like take everything over.
5: Yeah. I, I think that it's, it's hard for people to imagine how intense like the struggle for getting any kind of rights in the workplace yeah. have been in the United States in particular. I think a lot of people think that, you know, uh maybe not so much anymore, but when I was younger, you know, 20 years ago, people would be like, oh, you know, we're in America, we've got, you know, like we've got all these things, like we get, you know, an eight-hour workday and we've got like a weekend and all like and the thing is is that literally people were murdered to win those things. Right. Yeah. Like if you, like the reason why we have an eight hour workday is because there was in Chicago, uh, a famous, uh, uh, a famous strike that, um, ended up with a massacre of, of, um, it was like a police riot. And then they rounded up a bunch of union organizers, socialists and anarchists who were like involved in the, the labor movement at that time. And then, uh, the state of Illinois hung them. Um, and so, uh, the wife of one of the, um, of one of those people, uh, who was, uh, murdered, the, uh, at the Haymarket, uh, or they call them the Haymarket martyrs. Uh, Albert Parsons was one of them, uh, her, or his wife, Lucy Parsons, who was, uh, had a very, a veritable kind of like, not quite sure what her background was, but we do know that she was probably a former slave. Uh, Albert Parsons was a former Confederate. They got married, in the South became Southern Republicans, trying to like uh, participate in Radical Reconstruction, and then they basically had to flee because they were um for, with their lives to the North. And uh, but after that whole trial and all that shook out, uh, Lucy Parsons became a labor agitator. Um, across the United States fighting for the eight hour day. And uh, and they memorialized the Haymarket Martyrs and something that I think some of your listeners will know about, maybe they won't, but you know, Mayday. Mayday, uh, yep. a lot of people's like, oh, that's Russian or some foreign sort of thing. No, that is a, an American labor tradition that like started here. And it was because of a specific like the, the labor movement and the movement for the eight hour day in the United States. So, um, and that's kind of like, once you go from the IWW and industrial unions as an idea, it got crushed in the twenties because it was so terrifying. There's a really good, uh, a really good essay on all that called the stopwatch and the wooden shoe by a guy named Mike Davis, who kind of explains how it is that the IWW is the first union to not only, um, try and build, a workers organization but to challenge workplace organization and to make those push back on how production was happening and fight something called the speed up where i think a lot of people who've worked have experienced this time where a boss yep. will come in and say we're going to do things differently and they'll either uh, get rid of a worker and put all the extra work onto people who remain or they'll change things so you're doing more with the same amount of time yep um They got, you know, they provoked a backlash. Um, There were like spectacular, like general strikes. Uh, The first general strike in America uh, in Seattle, there were IWW members who are key members of the Seattle Labor Council, which took craft unions and got their radicals together and coordinated a general strike, um, which is where there's a lot of tweets about general strikes, but general strikes require a lot of organization. Yep. And coordination, And we can talk about that later if we want to, but key thing is, is the IWW was always pushing for the organization necessary to pull off a general strike and they did it. Yep. And so amongst those different things and the there were mine wars in Colorado, mine wars in uh Virginia West Virginia um they were the first union that was explicitly uh anti-racist. Um they They weren't perfect, but they were, uh, but they organized multiracial unions in um, Philadelphia, the Docks, and various other places. They were one of the few unions that really took the first steps into organizing in the South in the way that um, a lot of unions have kind of failed to since. And because they were so effective and so frightening, they got
4: crushed. Um, Yeah, I mean, also, one other thing (laughs) I want to say about them is that, like, like the the IWW fought in the Mexican Revolution because, you know, a lot of the IWW members in California in particular were like a lot of, a lot of indigenous people, a lot of sort of of Mexican immigrants. So yeah, they had these huge ties. And like, they, they like, they, I think, I think to this day, this is still true Uh, outside of Puerto Rico. Like they they are the only leftist movement that has ever like taken control of an American city. Like they, they, they took to Mexico and Mexicali and like a bunch of the sort of the border area. (laughs) Yeah. And that, that's, that, that's, you know, part of why it just escalates to everyone starts shooting them because,
5: well, and and they were truly an international union yeah, because yeah. they were they focused on like uh, longshoremen and organizing and docks that sort of thing. There were uh, members of the IWW organizing basically everywhere in the world, and they were considered part of like what was like a a global movement, and we call them syndicalists which is yep. kind of like a an italian term or french term um which is this the you know uh, like like the latin version of, of union is syndicate or syndic uh, and um there were similar unions across the world up through the early 20th century until right about the time when the russians uh the russian uh, revolution happened and then there were subsequent crackdowns and because uh, these people who, I mean, the IWW was uh, a mix of native American, native born Americans and immigrants. And they were painted as this foreign sort of force. They were un-American. That was like the whole like, nexus of un-Americanism as like an idea.
4: <clears throat>
5: and the U S state was able to mobilize after world war one to really put that down. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so there's a lot of history there, and that, but the idea of the Industrial Union didn't go away, right? The the union, the IWW, was effectively dismembered and scattered, but a lot of people who had experienced as IWW members, who had been in those strikes, um, didn't like just disappear. They didn't all get deported or sent away. Um, a lot of them kind of tucked their heads down and. Went back to work, you know, and in the 1930s, we saw the rise of another uh, industrial, the next step towards industrial unionism. So it's called the CIO, which is the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Yep. Now, uh, there were multiple uh, at that point. There was the Communist Party USA, the Socialist Party uh, of America, and um, former members of the IWW. And uh, various like anarchists who were participants in kind of the uh, organization of the CIO, and the thing about CIO was was that when they came together, um, it was in the the Great Depression had really kind of kicked off, and they were able to organize like really explosively across all these new industries. So they like the UAW, United Auto Workers was like part of the CIO. And they would they pioneered forms of strikes called sit-down strike, which was basically a factory seizure. All the workers would just say, we're not going to walk out. We're going to lock ourselves in. And we're going to sit down and it's our factory now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now you're going to have to negotiate with us. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it became this thing where it was like millions of people were in like, the IWW at any one time was like hundreds of thousands of people and the CIO became a thing where it was millions of people and um and at least at the beginning when they had their uh when they had were at the peak of their like power and militancy um they were able to mobilize workers to take over factories uh take over Factories from some of the most powerful corporations on the earth, uh, yep. on earth. And, you know, and at the same time, um, while they're doing this, the, uh, the police and, uh, company, um, company security and vigilantes, which had never gone away from like the IWW were doing the same sorts of things. So they would regularly, yeah. uh, beat strikers. They would regularly, there would be, you know, regular labor massacres. Yep. um disappearances of various um, of labor organizers or uh, labor leaders or even just random workers that they thought were like oh you're a unionist um you know get in the back of this uh, get in the back of this uh, truck and then they were never seen again Yep. um and then laws started to be enacted I believe out of fear that if this if this movement didn't get somehow put under brought in under control, that there would be a revolution, and so, uh, so that's when we started to see the enactment of laws like the National Labor Relations Act, which made having a union like that was the first time when being in a union was considered legal at the federal level, and that uh, the you know FDR the New Deal Democrats. Uh, basically attempted to broker something called a labor peace where they would say, we're no longer going to mobilize the state against workers in the way that we have previously. Now, local police would still side with bosses, that sort of thing. But, uh, and those sorts of massacres and uh, that sort of stuff didn't really go away until like the forties. But, um, That was the beginning of, because what you see is unions get channeled into, once you have like a million people in a union, you have just enormous amounts of resources, Mm -hmm. all these dues coming in. You have the beginning of the labor bureaucracy, whereas before it would be, you know, there would be hired, you know, paid labor organizers, but they were always shifting around and they were, they were brought up as communists or socialists. And they had ideological commitments to building the power of the union and the power of workers that you know if you are just a you know and someone with some ambition and decide that you want to become a like anyone at this point, you know, who wants to can become a paid union staffer if you're like, you know, uh if you care to. And a lot of people um then being a union staffer was a different thing than it is now. It was, I think. I'm trying to remember the name of, uh, the president, of, I think it was John Lewis, John Lewis, who was a Republican back in the day, uh, said, you know, I think famously said at one point, it's like, if you want to build a union or if you want to build a house, you call a carpenter. If you want to build a union, you call communists. <laughs> and so, uh, and so they would literally would go to like the, 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 you know, the communist party and say, we need organizers and the communist Party did a lot of work to training people to be organizers and they were militant they were ready to mm-hmm. throw down because to them they were looking at this as part of a you know class struggle against you know bosses and you know a way of overthrowing capital um that kind of went through until uh world war 2 and uh when world war 2 hit that's when the soviet union which in many ways controlled what was happening with communist, with CPUSA basically said, we need a labor peace because we need to support the war effort. And so that's when unions started uh, signing contracts with no strike clauses. And they started um, agreeing that they would no longer strike. Um, and, and they started agreeing to things like speed ups, There used to be a time when uh, these mass industrial unions, the stewards would walk around with a whistle on their neck. They'd have a whistle on a lanyard. And any time that workers decided that this is like an an example of how powerful these unions were, not just like as like an organization, but every day at your, your workplace, if you thought that something was not right or you were not being treated fairly, or somehow the contract was in breach, you would go to your steward and your steward would pull out this whistle and would blow the whistle. It was called a whistle stop strike. And everyone would set down their tools until management would come out and they would either agree to pay more or stop what was happening and fix it. And so, um, there was a time when strikes would be, uh, you would have intermittent work stoppages. So you wouldn't go out like indefinitely. You wouldn't go out on strike for like three months though that happened, uh, you wouldn't just, and it wouldn't just be your factory. It would be, Hey, we're getting on the phone and we're calling our friends down the street at the next, at your supplier. That's called a secondary strike. So if you're working at like a steel mill and your steel mill is dependent on Coke from the next factory over, you're calling up your friends in the same union down the way, say, stop sending Coke, stop sending materials, these things to us. We're on strike. You guys, uh, you all set your tools down, you go on strike and it would, and these strikes would like massively expand. So you would see things instead of seeing, you know, we just went through striketober, right? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) and we just, and so we saw like what we call a strike wave, but in, and in some ways it was a strike wave, but I think that we still don't, I think it's so far away from living memory of what a real strike wave is where people would go on strike in one factory and then the next factory and the next factory and the next factory. It literally would be a wave of people um, going on strike. And this was all the result of all the organization that people had and the militant attitude that people had about like how they were going to be treated at work.
4: It's worth mentioning that one of the so the National Labor Relations Act, which gets passed in nineteen thirty five, which is like the you know, this is the beginning of the labor peace. Like, you know, it's okay, we'll give you the right to a union, but you cannot do secondary strikes. Like like this is this is explicitly banned in this, if I'm remembering this right, is that there's a specific thing that says you can't do secondary strikes anymore. And, you know, and th- this was this was, you know, the, the 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 basis of this piece was that like yeah it, as you sort of said before it was like well okay so the, the 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 state will put their guns down but the workers also essentially have to put their guns down and yeah and this this starts this whole process of you know once once you lose like that kind of consciousness and once you lose just the, the, the practical experience of doing this stuff it kind of it fades and, it, and over time you know it's yeah, it atrophies, and and the unions get weaker and weaker because, you know, like with without like you know once you, once you've set aside right and you've decided that you're gonna essentially you know, okay, we're gonna we're gonna follow the laws, we're gonna sit down, we're gonna do this, we're gonna like negotiate in good faith, we're gonna have all of this sort of, um, you know, we're we're gonna go through the National Labor Relations Board, and it's like, well, at that point, people like people people's willingness to pick the weapons back up that they'd put down just sort of continues to diminish and-
5: well i think what happens is i mean and so there was like a 10-year period so first there was like the first five you know five ten years of cio was when we received like this really like intense militancy uh within these unions and halfway through like you know the the passage of that first law in the 1930s um that's when we started to see the erosion And we constantly see, I think a thing that people don't understand is that our bosses are always trying to assert their control over work. And we'll see that like um, bosses will do all kinds of contortions as long as they get to stay in charge and that they're unquestioned. And I don't think we understand quite how long the long game is for, um, for management, for our bosses and for capital. And so, you know, it starts with the National Labor Relations Act and then it goes through, uh, um, it goes through World War II. And during World War II, that's when the CIO goes from, you know, you know, millions of people to like tens of millions. And it becomes like a thing where like, that's when, you know, like 50% of Americans are in a union. Right. Um, because I mean, to the extent that, uh, that to the extent that, um, there were those compromises happened. It didn't just compromise, it wasn't just like a failure of like, oh, like we're just going to start capitulating. It's like there were interests inside the union that are looking at like, well, this is a lot of resources and power that we have now, but wait until like it's, you know, 50% of America yeah, is yeah. paying union dues. And there were people inside the Democratic Party who were willing to trade um that uh labor piece for the you would start to see you know, that's when politicians would show up to, um, to union halls to talk and try and get, you know, and that's when, you know, the democratic party, it would be, it wouldn't be un- unusual to hear a democratic politician, um, say things about like labor that you would like, uh, that no politician would say today. And that, now that doesn't mean that they were like on the side of the workers, but you know, you'd have literally, um, president eisenhower telling the president of u.s steel to get fucked over like a general like you're you're trying to shut down like you know this is like the the steel industry is the lifeblood of backbone of the american economy um you know and you're trying to shut this down you're trying to kill the golden goose like get back to work let the pay these people what they're asking um but you know so you would see the people who kind of floated to the top of those uh unions trading they're un- trading away their workers' power and their workers' well-being for more and more money. First off, there would be more money, so you would you like they would start getting raises that were really substantial, and it would mm-hmm. boost up a a union steel worker or a union auto worker into what we consider like the comfortable middle class, where people could like buy a like a, a fishing cabin or something up on a lake, send their kids to college, all these sorts of things that were just kind of like unobtainable sorts of things if you were the same in the same industry 20 years earlier. Yeah. And, um, and that felt like wins, you know, to people. And also in the 1940s, after World War II, they passed the Taft-Hartley Act, which basically meant that they, they forced unions. Uh, well they did. Okay. They wrote into law that it was illegal to be a communist or an anarchist in, uh, uh, in a union and so there are literally still unions that still have language in their uh in their membership cards where they're like I declare I'm ne- I've never been a member of the communist party I'm not an uh, you know an anarchist uh i mean like i've i have friends who've pulled that out now it doesn't have any effect now but that was they basically took all the people you know the people that uh that were you know the people that you would have called to build the union uh 20 years later or before we're getting thrown out of unions and that didn't happen in every, like there were attempts to do that in all kinds of countries. Uh, They tried to do it in the UK and the unions in the UK told, uh, basically told the government to go fuck themselves. And they, you know, it's like, but because the leadership of the, uh, of the CIO industrial unions began to see themselves more in alignment with our ruling class and our, you know, like the democratic party, they decided that they were big enough that they didn't have to have militants involved anymore. And that's when, you know, uh, people were literally would get fired out of, uh, did either, either militants and staff would get fired or, uh, they would get uh, fired out of factories if you're like a rank and file worker. So, um, and that's when we begin to see the rise of what we call business unionism. And that's where we would have, union bureaucrats would, and, um, would, you know, would basically start making concessionary contracts. And this started, you know, back in the, you know, a lot of people were like, Oh, you know, back in the fifties unions were really powerful and they were powerful to get, you know, like raises, but those raises came at the expense of control over the work process. They came at the expense of the speed up. Um, and as unions, like, because, The rank and file workers, like you're saying, you know, rank and file workers and they see their thing, their, these tools getting put down and they're more reluctant to pick them up. First off, it's because of the amount of money that they're getting paid. And, but they did push back. They were like, this is, I mean, like, uh, there's a really great book called the next shift, um, by, uh, Gabriel Winant. It's all about the shift from steel, the steel industry as like the center of the U S economy to healthcare. Um, and how unions basically started to erode away their like throw away, like hand over their power in exchange for money. And then, when they were told, like there was um an attempt to get socialized medicine in the under the Truman administration. And when they were basically uh, they they hit a speed bump in there and it got shot down they decided that instead of trying to win those, uh, those broad social reforms for everybody, they're like, well, we can use our, our power to strike to, uh, get basically construct a private welfare state for our workers. And Mm -hmm. so that's when you begin to see, um, things like, uh, the, they call them like the gold plated insurance plans for certain types of, uh, unionized workers. And those would kind of, um, and those were kind of used as like a private welfare state for all those workers and it was built with the assumption that you're going to have low cost uh workers uh basically doing all this care work um and oftentimes it'd be women of color um, and um and through that you start to see this real sharp decline from the 60s uh in like uh in union um militancy Um, and that's when factory, uh, when capital starts moving factories out of city centers, where it's very easy to organize a factory when everyone lives within walking distance, of the factory, and when they're done with their shift at the factory, they're all at the bar outside the, uh, outside the factory gates. You can just like, if you want to have a union meeting, if you want to organize even a wildcat strike, all you have to do is show up at the right bar. And that's where everyone is after they're done with their shift. Um, they started moving and dispersing the industrial capacity of the United of, you know, the, the U S urban core out into suburbs. So that's now where you'll drive through rural Indiana and you'll pass like five factories and they're surrounded by nothing but cornfields. It's because it's a lot harder to organize uh, auto workers when they all live 30 minute drive from each other. And none of them hang out at the same bar anymore. Uh, And then you start to see, um, and all through that time, the commitments to, uh, anti-racism are eroded. So you'll see, um, jobs get, start to get segregated out inside. of like steel mills and things like that. But then, you know, there's also the rise of, uh, rank and file movements to push back. So, um, all the while we're talking about this, there's always workers who remember what these things were like and why, and the power that they used to have. And they would do the best that they could to get organized. So um, there's a really good um, documentary you can find on YouTube called "Finally Got the News." It's about the uh, Dodge Revolutionary Union movement in uh, Detroit, which was a uh, rank and file uh, reform movement uh, organized by um, by black auto workers that got like a fair amount of support from white uh, auto workers because they were basically there's you know uh, interviews with UAW bureaucrats and they're just like you know we're getting people these raises why are they upset that they're like getting maimed in the factory right or why are they getting upset that you know you know black workers are constantly getting put into the shittiest jobs or the first to get laid off that sort of thing and that's a it's a really i suggest anyone has time and that came out of like the i think that was immediately after the was getting organized after the assassination of martin luther king and all the riots that were happening in the uh in the 60s at like that late 60s period um in the 70s uh there was the teamster uh the teamster rank and file rebellion my grandpa was a teamster <laughs> trucker uh and, and my grandma was
4: drove- a uh a teamster she, she was a like a, a punch card operator but yeah sorry <laughs> sure.
5: yeah yeah no i mean like teamster these unions got so big and they have yeah. all kinds of, that's how you end up with like there's UAW teaching assistants now. Right.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Like
5: how do you end up with these huge like uh, unions and during Teamster rebellion and my grandpa would tell these stories like we're going on, there'd be a wildcat strike and they call it out over the CB radios. And the way they would enforce the picket line wasn't just like, Oh, we're going to like stand in the road or something. They would hang Coke bottles full of rocks over the overpasses (laughs) just high enough up to like, that cars would pass underneath them but if you hit one and you were in a truck you'd fuck up your day Um, and that was like a really um, like a really kind of like powerful pushback by rank and file workers against Mm -hmm. what they saw was the erosion of their power because I think that I think there's this sometimes amongst people who consider themselves to be left or whatever there's like this kind of doom and gloom like oh it's only like we're only losing right but and there's been a lot of as the 70s happened and capital is kind of reconfiguring itself in the middle of all the economic upheaval, inflation. Um, basically they got to the point where we can't maintain labor peace and maintain profits, right? So they yeah. could maintain labor peace and have something more like a socialist system, or they could maintain control over the work process and just do everything in their power to destroy the power of workers. And they decided to do that. Um, so I think we we're coming out of this kind of era where, you know, if you were in a union and working in a factory, um, there was a real threat that they're like, well, we're just going to shut this factory down. And, you know, NAFTA gets signed. Well, first it was the, the Petco strike uh, with Reagan. Reagan gets elected and air uh, air traffic controllers decided they're going to go on strike. And, um, and They, and Reagan decided he was going to break it. And they, they brought in, they basically, there was this big recession. It was like this huge mess where people were really desperate for work. And, um, you know, they said, we're going to hire anyone to be an air traffic controller and we're going to break the strike. And that was the first real, the first, like that, the, the beginning of the end of that final, like that big moment era of industrial unionism in the United States, And we went from a place where, you know, UAW had millions, the United Auto Workers had millions and millions of workers. And if you drove a car or a truck and it was made in America, it was made by a union uh, worker to this point where now the UAW is around 50,000 people. I was shocked when I heard that literally like two weeks ago. Um, You know, we just had the big UAW strike at John Deere. um, And there's been, and, you know, all through this, while this is going on, Um, there's various union corruption scandals. And that's again, the cause of like, when you kick out all the people who have an ideological commitment to improving the lives of working people and building the power of working people out of this organization, that's only existence is to like, build the power of working people. Um, then you, uh, then you end up with people who are basically criminals. Like you end up like there would be, uh, I think Reagan scat, like Ronald Reagan, was, uh, was a union member, but he was like the union member for like a corrupt like. There was like there was like a, a battle between like the CIO controlled union in like Hollywood and like the corrupt like mob- mobbed up union, and the mobbed up union like that was the side of, I'm ninety percent sure that that was the side that Reagan <laughs> picked. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, so it's like you could kind of and. There was a lot of like media where they would be like, you know, the waterfront and various like movies and things talking about union corruption. And I think that union corruption is real. And it's a, it's a, when it happens, it's a huge problem. It shouldn't like, it's in other countries, like in, like in Germany, if they found out like a union, union official, like misappropriated like 2000 euros, it would be a, a nationwide scandal. Like, um, also in, uh, in like European countries, like you pay union dues on a voluntary basis, right? In the U S legally, since we're a closed shop system, like once you're at a union, uh, a union workplace, your dues get taken, whether, you know, whether you're happy with the union or not. Now there are people who say that's really important because unions need every penny they can to fight for what they have. But when unions have to fight for membership and make sure that their membership knows that they're getting like what they're paying for, you get a little bit more responsiveness. So I think that's another thing that especially people are thinking about unions and thinking about joining a union or creating getting a union at the workplace, just understand what a union is and how they work and where your money's going to. And that if you're unhappy with that, the best thing to do is to get involved with your union to try and like get. Connected with your coworkers who have similar complaints and change the union because there's a saying, it's like any union is better than no union. That's not always true, but it generally is.
4: There, there there's like a very small chance that like you're like living in nineteen twenty nine China and like your union is like is controlled by like a combination of the K and T and like literally the Chinese heroin trade. But you know, that that like yeah, that like doesn't I mean there there
5: there are things where you'll have like there my dad worked at a factory and there was it was a teamster Organized factory and like some of the stewards were bullies and literally like there were some people who were dealing drugs out of it and they gave the the workers like tried to bring in another union and the and the management decided to offer to also try and decertify, de-certify the union at the same time mm. and the workers voted to decert and the thing is is that now that factory shut down and gone. Um, and I guess like the thing is, is that you have to, it's far better for workers to assert their rights within their union where they have some modicum of democratic control over what's going on Mm -hmm. than it is to just throw up your hands and like there's, and do nothing because if you do nothing, the boss is always doing something. Yeah. Like that's the thing is like management is always organizing. They're always coming up with ways to like, to undermine, uh, the control of workers at work to pit people against each other. Um, We can get into it later, but like uh, they want, they'll use racism and those sorts of things to dole out favors or curry favoritism and like, you know, pit people against each other. So I think that it's important to just say that like the union is going to be your only effective way to push back, well, the union or collective action because I guess I also want to say that. there are times when organizing a union isn't the best solution to solving your problem at work. Ultimately, this is all about how do you solve problems at work, right? And there's sometimes when you can do collective action that is protected as you know as uh, labor organizing, but it's not done within a union. And so And because America is a really messed up place and you have right to work states and places where like being in a union is like literally illegal, Um, sometimes putting the time, you like, you can't get into a union and therefore you have to come up with other solutions. Or sometimes because of the nature of a workplace, like getting a union is like, is very hard or like basically impossible. That doesn't mean that you can't organize. And I think that that's the thing that everyone needs to understand. I think there's a lot of like, Boosterism of unions amongst younger workers because people just don't understand how they work or they haven't experienced them themselves, and I think that the main thing is is that you've got to be very careful with your time and understanding. Like building a union can take like ten years mm-hmm. from the beginning of we're upset to now we have a collective bargaining agreement, or now we have a collective bargaining agreement. It could be another five or 10 years before you actually get to the point where you're organized enough to go on strike. And people oftentimes think that that's like, they look back at the history of things and they're like, oh, it was so easy. But back then people were taking, all. I mean, they it took them years to build the, the, the US labor movement into what it was at its peak. It took decades, right? Hmm. And I think that we're kind of used to this instant gratification kind of stuff. We have to understand that it's like, if you're going to be in a workplace where you're there for enough time to build the trust and relationships and understanding of how the work workplace works and keep your job and be someone that people don't look at as like a shirk or whatever. Not that I don't think that people should, you know, people (laughs) should work as hard as they can and not any more harder than that, (laughs) but whatever. Um, uh, But I think that, you know, I'm anti-work, but you know, that's a whole other thing. Unions are the best way to limit the amount of work that you have to do. (laughs) Um, If you're going to, if you're going to, uh, you know, work as a wage laborer. Um, But I'll just say that it's like, I think that people don't, that it's difficult sometimes to understand how much work goes into getting to the point of getting a union, but it's always worth putting the time in to get there. And you may not win the first try, but if you are, if. If the conditions are right and things like, you know, we make our history, but not in conditions of our choosing. Sometimes things don't work out, but not doing it is, I think a, it's detrimental to you and your coworkers. And even times, like I've talked with people who've been involved in campaigns where they got fired, but then all of a sudden conditions improved afterwards. And they look at that as like, oh shit, we didn't get our union, but everyone got raises and they change some things at work and that's actually a victory. So, you know, I think that, think of each other as like collective, building collective power and the amount of time it takes to do that is daunting. But I think it's the sort of thing that we need to do if we're serious about changing how we can actually, like how our lives work and how much power we have outside of work because unions are also places where we do things that affect Outside of our work as well.
1: It could happen here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at slash sources. Thanks for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry.
3: with Zumo Play.